All right. Hi, my name is Liz Thompson, and I am currently a PhD candidate in the School of Pharmacy at the University of Saskatchewan. I have an undergraduate degree in molecular biology and genetics, and I have a master's degree in applied physiology. So now my PhD is looking at cannabinoid pharmacology, and I'm currently working on the project that is being partially funded by the NFL. Curious About Cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn. To get access to free courses and other educational resources, visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a Curious About Cannabis member for free. The Curious About Cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. This episode of the Curious About Cannabis podcast is sponsored by Mary Jane Athletics and the Train with Mary Jane miniseries. Mary Jane Athletics was started by Liz Thompson, a member of the Canadian research team that was recently awarded funding from the NFL in 2022 for a series of studies examining how cannabis can treat pain and concussions in athletes. The Train with Mary Jane miniseries follows the researchers, trainers, athletes, and family members participating in these groundbreaking studies and provides a behind-the-scenes look into real-life, on-the-ground cannabis research that has the potential to save lives. Learn more about Mary Jane Athletics and the Train with Mary Jane miniseries at trainwithmaryjane.com. And if you happen to be an athlete or an athletic healthcare provider or trainer that would like to participate in these studies, go ahead and complete one of the research surveys that are available at trainwithmaryjane.com. That's trainwithmaryjane.com. And thank you very much, Mary Jane Athletics, for your support. We appreciate it. And if you'd like to sponsor the Curious About Cannabis podcast, visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsor to learn more. And now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Today, I'm really excited to sit down with Liz Thompson, who has a wealth of information to share. Um, we have kind of an interesting background going back. We uh, Liz was in the master class, and I found out she had this awesome background in physiology and studying how natural products work and, and health and wellness. And then I found out she was connected to this project that's been in the news where the NFL's trying to fund, I think it's a couple million dollars, looking at how cannabis could affect athletes. So I decided to bring her on the show, talk all about it. And it's actually evolved into a whole mini series we're going to kick off here. So Liz, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here, Jason. I'm a big fan of Curious About Cannabis, so I am just happy to be here. And I feel unworthy compared to most of your other guests, but I'm so honored to come and be able to talk to you about what we're doing and answer some questions that maybe your listeners might have. Absolutely. And I mean, 
we've had so many good conversations off camera, um, just talking about not only this project, but how it connects to a lot of core issues around um, access to healthcare and all sorts of other issues that kind of get pretty deep. So I'm really excited to see where this conversation goes. To uh, start things off, uh, introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners, tell them a bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this NFL project and, and exactly what that project is. Oh, for sure. Okay. So this might be a long story, but Here we go. I'll, get, I'll get to the good part. So, um, so my undergraduate degree is in molecular biology and genetics. So I've always really liked things at the molecular level. And beyond that, um, I was doing a master's degree in applied physiology. I myself as have always been an athlete. So when I look at things and study things, I was always applying them back to the human body and kind of how can you use what you know and apply it in your life. Um, and so one of my supervisors in my master's program had a really good point to me when we were having a conversation one day. He said, you know, Liz, the difference between medicine and the difference between physiology is medicine studies medicine and physiology studies mechanism. And that really stuck with me forever because I have always looked at things in the way of mechanisms. And so now in my PhD, I think I'm able to bring it all together and look at how you can apply mm external molecules to affect physiology. And so I don't think that pharmaceuticals or even cannabinoids are the only way that you can affect physiology. I think it's just one of the multitude of tools that we really have. And um, so looking at that, when as it pertains to athletics, you know, um, I was an athlete, my husband was a professional athlete. And that's something that I don't really talk about a lot in my professional world as a PhD student. But a lot of what I did, I you know, I thought of him. And so he, when I started to look at the brain and stuff, he was a professional athlete in the years where we had a lot of substances coming online. And I'm going to date myself here, but, um, you know, there was a Vioxx problem in the early mm, 2000s yeah. where that was being used for anti-inflammation and they were giving it to athletes and eventually Merck, you know, pulled it off the shelf four years later. But I think in the meantime, the estimates are 40 to 60,000 people died because of this drug, because of what it did to their cardiac system. Mm -hmm. And so I started to look at things now um, as I was working in physiology and I was working with an amazing group of doctors and they employed me as the head of physiology um, in their doctor's group. And so what my job was, was to work with their patients to explain to them why they were taking the medications they were wow. and to teach them about the systems that those were affecting and these doctors were so amazing because their end game wasn't to keep these patients on these drugs. Their end game was to get him off the drugs. And so if they were using insulin for diabetes, or if they were using a medication for high blood pressure, you know, there's things that we can do to affect our physiology. It's almost like I consider it you're reverse engineering almost at the molecular level yeah, and you're looking yeah. at systems and how you can affect them to work backwards to get them to homeostasis. And so the endocannabinoid system really played really nicely into what I was looking at. And I started to discover things about it, which, you know, I was so mad when I discovered the endocannabinoid system even existed because I had gone right. through two degrees and never even heard the word before. And I was like, wait, yeah. what is this? So, um, you know, we can get into that in one second. But at the time that my husband was playing was also at the height of the opioid epidemics. And so we had teammates that were, you know, they had trouble with opioids. These opioids were being prescribed to 
athletes for injuries and, you know, the addiction rate for athletes being given opioids is the addiction rate of anybody is about 25%. When it's even yeah. prescribed by a doctor correctly used, 25% addiction probability is high. That's really high. Yeah. And we had teammates, you know, that died. They, they died and they continued to have problems. And so the actual mechanism that I was looking at when I really started to discover the endocannabinoid system is I was looking at the opioid receptors and I came mm. across a publication that suggested that potentially using cannabinoids could reduce the amount of morphine of morphine or opioids that you would require to get equivalent pain reduction. Right. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's wild. Why, how would that work? Like what? This is crazy. So then of course, and my supervisors always like want to smack me because I'm like, Oh, I got to look into that. Got another thing to research. So, yeah. Yeah. So I had to look into it because I'm like, that sounds so crazy. Why would you use cannabis? And I really didn't know anything about the molecular mechanisms of cannabis. And, you know, I knew a lot about molecular mechanisms. I knew a lot about immunology. I knew a lot about physiology, but I had never considered cannabis or cannabinoids in any potential. Really nobody, yeah. you know, at that time was right. I mean, it's such a young science because we didn't even know the system was there until how it I mean, I think it was 1988 that she isolated the CB1 receptor. I mean, that's baby right. years in science years, right? Like, yep. anyways, so I started to look more into that. And I think I'm still in the rabbit hole. <laughs> that was like 15 years ago. And it gets so deeper I, as we go. It, oh, man, does it get deeper, you know? So, yeah, so I was looking at it and started to see, okay, yeah, how that would work with the mu opioid receptor and the CB1 receptor and how you know, they transduce similar pathways and how, yes, it does make sense. And now there's actually some really good research happening now, like so many years later, actually looking at this, right? Because yeah. we have an opioid problem. And if we can reduce the amount of opioids that we need, you know, that's a win. It's a win yeah, for everybody. Absolutely. Well, maybe it's not a win for the people selling the opioids, but it's a win for the people using them. Yeah. And maybe so, they switch their energy to something else. Absolutely. They could go focus somewhere else. Exactly. But, you know, so I thought that was kind of wild. And then I started looking at it. And then really, it just kind of went from there. And so because my husband was a contact sport athlete, I was a contact sport athlete, I was actually a rugby player. And so nice. um, prior to that, I was a downhill ski racer. So I mean, a bit of an adrenaline junkie, but you just know, right? Yeah, rugby was a contact sport, but I really thought about my husband when I was living in this world of professional sports. And so sometimes when I think about why do I even have a voice to speak about, you know, yeah. what it looks like on the inside of athletics, but it's because I, I've lived in it since yeah. I was 17 years old. I've been with my husband since we were 17. And that's, wow. I mean, a really long time ago. So he was a professional athlete. I've seen the cycle of life of an entire, yeah. the entire cycle of life of an athlete, what it looks like after you're done playing. I've seen repetitive cycles of people that we know he still yeah. works in professional sports. And so now I look at all of the athletes that, you know, that he coaches now. And I just see multiple versions of him. And so yeah. Head contact has been a huge, you know, people get up on their soapboxes and they talk about head contact and I agree with a lot of it, but unless you're going to propose a solution, we don't need to hear the problem over and over again. We know there's mm -hmm. problems there. We know, you know, at the molecular level, sure, we can point it out. What is anybody going to do about it? And so and to, back up, just to back up just a second, yep. just in case anyone's unfamiliar, 
can you speak to any statistics on um, head injuries and traumatic brain injuries among athletes? Yes. Yeah. So for elite athletes, I think now the concussion rate in the NFL is roughly 8%. And then the the probability of having a repeat concussion is 6%. So it's only slightly smaller than the original injury. But we know molecularly with repeated incidences that right. will increase, you know, exponentially your chances of bad outcomes. The other thing and that we do know is when we look post-mortem at NFL players, um, so looking back in time, so we can look at them, um, when you look at what they died of, so mm -hmm. there has been research that has looked at NFL players and they see that an NFL player has a three times higher chance of dying from a neurodegenerative dysfunction than people that don't play contact sports. So we know yeah. that there's a higher rate of having neurodegenerative disorders um, we know that Alzheimer's degree or Alzheimer's disease, your potential for having a bad outcome from a TBI increases with the severity of the TBI. And we know that relates to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So it goes up twofold with a mild TBI. It goes up fourfold with a more severe TBI. And what we know oh, wow. is that there is something being triggered when that impact happens. And so what we're looking at is we're looking at the secondary effects and I'll, I'll get more into what our project is looking at, but it really is looking at what is the domino effect after the right. transfer, after the impact, because it doesn't end there, you know? And so mm -hmm. the primary injury is really where you hit your head and it's the transfer of energy, which the primary injury is the axon shearing or, you know, the actual tissue damage. But we're looking at the secondary injury, which is the molecular, the biochemical, um, and the cellular downstream effects mm -hmm. after the primary injury. And that's what research really suggests is the problem. Because we know with concussion that those secondary effects can perpetuate for decades. They can perpetuate yeah. for decades yeah. after the original impact. And so that's where I was like, if we could get in there, if there was a way to get in there and somehow like stick a pencil in the bike wheel and stop right. that from perpetuating, well what like just imagine what we could do and so when you look at the endocannabinoid system and how that in theory could work i really do believe and that that is what we're looking at i do think that this could be you know it would be an amazing thing yeah. for people that are playing contact sports but beyond that that's just like a little microscopic view of a of larger right yeah. of the larger you know, sub, that's just a subset of a larger population that have neurodegenerative dysfunctions. My, uh, oh, you know, my yeah. uh, spinal cord injuries, that's from skateboarding, you know, I mean. Yes, yes. And it's not just right. And that's the thing is people think contact sports, but think of it. Okay, skateboarding, right? People don't put that in contact sport. But when you're thinking of impact to head, yeah. there's so mm -hmm. many things. Like I know somebody that got kicked in the head by her kid by accident and had a right. concussion. Like parenting is yep. a contact sport. <laughs> like, you know, we get nailed but i mean when you think about when you think about the potential to be able to address something you know and and concussion when you look at what is the standard of care for concussion well it, it there is no agreed upon standard of care really so when you look at professional teams each team has their own protocol that they follow and you know and there is no pharmacological option right now there is no drug oh, wow. or okay. pharmacological agent that you can use for concussion right now. 
Now, I believe, and I think that the people on our team, and I think a lot of people and a lot of athletes that are using cannabinoids, um, I do think that molecularly, because of the way that we can use cannabinoids to mimic our own anti-inflammation pathways, I believe that we really could reduce a lot of the neuroinflammation and the immune activation that happens in our brain with concussion. And, and, and we know that there is, there is a lot of research showing that we can do this with um, agonists like a CB1 agonist, CB2 agonist. Mm -hmm. We know that we can do that. And so to me, you know, cannabis was a natural fit. It's like, okay, well, why aren't we doing this? So then I didn't really want to go back to school. <laughs> I, I didn't really want to go and do a PhD. So I was like, well, this is kind of interesting, you know, because I, I thought to myself, like, I don't just want to waste my time doing something that's going to die on a shelf and get dusty mm -hmm. and produce something that no one's ever going to read. And it's not going to make a difference. Like I'm not wasting my time doing that because I was happy. I, I yeah. really like to help people with the knowledge that I have in physiology, because the other thing that's ignored is nutrition and nutrition directly affects your physiology. And so there's a yep. lot I could already teach people with that. And I was happy teaching people that and helping athletes with that. You know, I was working, training them. I was working clinically. So that was good. But this was really interesting. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I would go back and do a PhD if I thought it'd make a difference. So then I thought, well, let me see if I can find somebody that would want to supervise me. Okay, well, I'm not sure how many people have looked for people to supervise them looking at cannabis in your brain. Well, there's not very many people no. that you can find. First of all, a lot of people would just hang up on you and be like, what are you even talking about? You know, you're crazy. But I, I found the most amazing supervisors and I am so blessed, you know, to even know them and call them friends now because I'm, I've had really just the greatest experience and, you know, graduate school is tough and it goes on forever and research yep, is yep. slow, but, and especially cannabis research, because we just have so many additional hurdles and laws that we have to jump through. But, um, so I just, you know, I made some calls. I'm Canadian and, you know, thankfully, for this project in 2018, Canada, we federally legalized cannabis. So we That's didn't right. have the illegal problem there that the U.S. has right now at the federal level. Now, we have other problems with our <laughs> cannabis industry, but that was one thing that I was like, okay, I'm grateful to be Canadian right now. So let me look around and kind of see. So um, the first person that I talked to was Robert LaPrairie, and he's amazing, and he's on my committee. And... Um, I was kind of fangirling out because he actually is credited with realizing that CBD is a negative allosteric modulator yeah, at the CB1 right. receptor. And I was like, no way. I get to talk to Robert LaPerry. Like, you know, some people, they get like that when they meet a rock star. I was like, you discovered my favorite receptor. But right? know, that's of, how like, I am about, with some of my yeah. interviews. I'm like, oh, my God. It's, it's like yeah. amazing, right? Like, or the people, you know, Candace Pert discovered the opioid receptor. Mm -hmm. Like, these are the people that really excite me. But, and of course, Meshulam, you know, and all of the kings and yeah. this. But anyway, so Robert was awesome. And he had a good long conversation with him. And he said, okay, well, so I told him what I wanted to do. Like, I see a pathway. I think we can do better for athletes. I think that, you know, the calcium ion exchange in the brain, I think we could affect it with cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could downregulate neuroinflammation. And I think for athletes, this is super important. I think we can do better. I think we can do better for our athletes. 
And he said, well, <laughs> what you're describing is, you know, and I said, why, why aren't we doing better? You know, and he said, well, you're describing something now that involves pharmacology, molecular biology and health policy. And I was like, okay. And he said, so really what you're talking about is all three of those things. And I said, yeah, it, it really is. And it so, is, yeah. because I think that, you know, the health policy is how we got in this problem in the first place with cannabis, the way it's that's legally scheduled yeah. and the way that it's viewed in society that stemmed from health policy problems. And I always thought I hated health policy and I wasn't right. But this, you know, this cannabis, you know, it really opened my eyes to so mm -hmm. many things and how so many policies are put in place and who are making these decisions. And I run that gamut a little bit with nutrition, you know, like, realizing that there wasn't a single nutritionist on the panel that put together mm. the nutritional pyramid, mm -hmm. like it was yeah. politicians. And so when you start to really pull back the layers of how are these policies putting it, being put in place, I spend most days like totally annoyed and aggravated at the entire world. And I'm so mad that the reality of what we live in looks the way it does. The tangled he, web we have to like unpack. And, uh, honestly, oh, yeah. And it's all, it is a web. But anyway, so Robert said, you know, I know who you could talk to. I think that you should reach out to Dr. Patrick Neary um, at the University of Regina because he is a concussion specialist. And he said, you know, and he, I've had a few conversations with him about cannabis and stuff, and he's a little bit interested in that. And so he goes, I think that you could try reaching out to him. So I did. And, um, and Patrick's amazing. And he is my PhD supervisor and he is amazing. And so I contacted him and, you know, right off the bat, we had a great conversation because he was the first person that I actually had a conversation with that knew exactly what I was talking about when I said, oh, I think yes, in the brain, yes. the calcium ion, yeah, the calcium ion channels are changing in the brain with concussion. And I think it affects, you know, your autonomic nervous system. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. We could pick up the conversation and it was like, I literally felt like I died and gone to heaven. I wanted to talk to him forever because it's hard to find somebody to even have that conversation with. So he said, yeah, I will take you on as a graduate student. That would be fantastic. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm interested in looking at cannabinoids. And so let's do that. And so I applied and, and got accepted. And that was the year of the pandemic. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. yeah. So now we're Canadian and my university is in Canada and my husband is coaching in the U S and now we have a border problem. And so I was like, okay, well I can't get back across the border. And so again, health policy, it was like yeah. making my life miserable. So he said, okay, well, since we have this problem, we're going to have to start from a distance because mm -hmm. there's still a lot that we can do. Um, without you being able to get across the border. So I was like, okay. So his university actually was like, the University of Regina was like, well, I don't really see how we could do that. And so he was like, I think I know somebody that we can ask if she would be willing to help us out. And that's my other supervisor, Dr. Jane Alcorn, and she is the Dean of Pharmacy at the University of Saskatchewan. So I'm double supervised by those two. Gotcha. Okay. So she said, yes, and she is amazing at helping people really get to the end of their vision and try nice. everything you can and think outside the box to make it work. And that's how, you know, growing up in pro sports, having to move and having to adapt and whatever. I, I try to be like that myself. Look for the solution. Don't sit mm -hmm. on the problem. 
find the solution. And so she was willing to work with me and Patrick to try to make it so that we could create a way to do this with the border problem. And so, yeah, so she, she took me on. And so that was, gosh, that was in 2020. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was how I got to my amazing supervisors. It's wild. And then, yeah. So then um, at that time, um, (laughs) yeah, at that time I was outside actually, it was in, I think it was in July or eight, maybe it was April. And I was watering the first cannabis plant that I ever grew. Uh-huh. And I actually saw this thing come across my phone and it was the NFL's call for researchers. And so I was like, huh. And of course, right away, I had to go in and like, you know, contact Patrick. Right. I'm like, Patrick, check it out. The NFL's putting up money for exactly what I said I wanted to study. Like I, I started my PhD saying, I want to look at cannabis and neuroinflammation and concussion. Like this was months before they put out their call for research. And this thing just, you know, I was just, I don't even know where it was. Perfect alignment. Yeah. And so it came across and I was like, Patrick, check it out. And he's like, oh, I'm going to apply. And and he goes, I said, yeah, look at it. And I said, like, this is great. And he goes, oh, we're going to apply. And I was like, we are? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, let's apply. And I was like, okay. And he goes, yeah, hold that thought for a second. I'm going to go and gather some people that I know in all these different areas. And we are going to put together the most amazing project. And then we're going to put that project to the NFL as our researcher application. And so, I mean, Patrick's an amazing human. He has friends and he's been working, you know, in physiology and concussion and athletics for ever. And he would kill me <laughs> if I said, oh, he's an old guy because we always laugh about it. But I mean, he's been he's been in this industry. He's got great friends, you know, so he was able to find. Um, most of them are my committee members now for my wow. PhD, but you know, one is going to look at, um, the cerebral vascular changes in the brain and the cerebral oxygenation in the brain using cannabinoids. And so we're going to have a look at the actual changes in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one that's looking at the cardiovascular changes. So we're actually looking at the autonomic changes to your heart, um, using the cannabinoids. We have one that's a pain expert that's going to look at the changes in the pain perception and the ratings of pain using the cannabinoids. Of course, Jane, my PhD supervisor, is looking at the pharmacokinetics. So we're actually going to be able to look at like, you know, time to maximum concentration in the blood serum. How long does it last? The area under the curve. So we're looking at that. We're looking at bioinflammatory markers. So we're doing blood draws to see the changes in the bioinflammatory markers with and without cannabinoids. Um, yeah, gosh, I probably it's so full ranging. I mean, it, it right. really See, tackles this from so many different angles. Yeah. And we're actually also looking at, so that is one thing that I forgot. We are also looking at the anxiety, the depression and the quality of life changes nice. too. Nice. Good. So the social science part too. So like he really grabbed his people from every place, every corner of his, the path that he has walked, he found somebody. And so he put together this project involving this team and he's like, okay, so this is what we're going to do. And I just fell off my chair when I saw, because I was like, that is just bigger than my wildest dream that we could ever do that. Because I just, when I saw this thing come across, I just wanted to do one little thing. I didn't even think that right, we would apply right. for it. I was just kind of like, Hey, check it out. This is Here's so cool. Idea. The NFL. Yeah. I was like the NFL, like they must see what I see, you know, maybe let whatever, this is cool. Right. I didn't actually think that he would apply. Um, and so he put it together and there was over 110 different research groups that actually applied 
you know, and they uh-huh. did wow. use the NIH adjudication. So we had to go through, you know, multiple layers of presenting what we would look at and how we would do it. Um, and so then we got down to the final 10. And of course, I'm just thinking I'm like living my dream here. Like I couldn't right. even imagine this could go any better. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. Like, you know, we made it to the top 10 thinking like, okay, we're going to get gonged out now. And then it turned out that we got selected and Tom Marcotte's group got selected um, at UC, I think they're in San Diego, UC San Diego. And so the NFL did end up selecting, we were the two recipients for their research funding um, which was so exciting. You know, it was just, it was really exciting because when I started, I wouldn't have ever dreamt in my wildest dreams that I would be able to do this project, um, and have it, you know, funded by a professional sports league. It's crazy to me because yeah. the whole, the people that I wanted to even study it for, the reason I wanted to study it was because of the athletes. It was because my husband was an athlete because all the people that he coaches now are athletes. I've raised my children. They're athletes, you know, um, and they grew up in the game. And so for me, you know, it's been crazy. But anyways, it's so I just thought it's, that my life experience and then coming to this that way was just I was so grateful and really blessed. And, you know, so I just really hope that I can get this to the people, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it has such a it weaves so many things together um and you are very well suited to like um pres- uh, you know present this story really you know of what this research means to people that it's it's more than just like an interesting little study about you know brain injuries you know people see the headlines and stuff but for you right. it connects personally and for all of these athletes and their families, it connects personally. And even beyond that as well, law enforcement and military and you know, yeah, yeah. all sorts of other people that experience these types of things. Yeah. Um, it's deeply, deeply meaningful. Yeah, it really is. And that was actually the one piece that I was like, you know what? And that was the part, that was the very specific part of this entire NFL project that I decided that I was going to pick up and make my own was to bring this information to people in a level that they can understand. And so what I wanted to do, because I started thinking about it and I'm like, okay, guys, like all this bench science, it's awesome. And like, this is my Mm -hmm. dream. This is everything I want to study. But we have a massive problem because the world is not made up of people that study the endocannabinoid system. The world... And the the policy makers, like our doctors don't even understand the endocannabinoid system, most of them. Um are they don't understand how cannabinoids work with the endocannabinoid system so statistically we know that our doctors are very undereducated in it so how in the heck are we going to expect the policymakers that we are going to produce this mm-hmm. information for to even understand what we're saying and even so have I'm the like, context to, they, to like they, appreciate it they don't they don't yeah. have the context and so you know and a lot of them actually have you know they have a stigma because of things that they they don't even know why they believe what they believe they they don't know where they've got their information for but most of them have a stigma against cannabis they have no conceptualization at all that this has been used you know it mm-hmm. was the most used thing in the pharmacopoeia until like 1942 when it was removed it's right. been used for thousands of years like people think it was invented with like Cheech and Chong and Woodstock. Like that's not where cannabis started. Cannabis started, you know, thousands of years ago in Asia. It's been used culturally forever. So 
you know, I think of, okay, we're going to come up with this awesome, like awesome data, you know, or maybe our data is going to fail, but either way, we need to make it understandable to the people that are going to interpret yeah. this new knowledge because otherwise we're never going to change a policy. If the, if what we're after, you know, and, and the athletes, and it's really funny because the reason why the NFL even ponied up the money in the first place was because their athletes were pressuring them to, mm-hmm. because the yeah. NF, you know, the athletes have been asking them, you got to change the policy. You got to change the policy. And so, you know, the NFL, they used to have a 15, you know, it was 15 nigs per milliliter blood serum would, mm, mm-hmm. would be a positive test. Well, now they made it 150. Okay, fine. So they made it a lot higher, but why is it even there at all? Right. right. You know, and so the athletes were like, and I mean, there's corporate sponsorships and you could, you know, XYZ, you could probably think about why it's still mm-hmm. there. But anyways, you know, the federal legality in the States is a big deal about it, but you know, the, the players we're pressuring them and because the NFL kept saying, and rightfully so, because from the side of science, they were saying, we don't have mm-hmm. the data. We don't right. have the data. And I respect yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, well, then get the data, get the data then. So then they put up the money so that they can get the data. And that's the right thing that they did. Now, it's not enough money because research is expensive. <laughs> and small like, drip in the know, bucket, but it's a good after, start. Yep. But it's a good start. And, you know, but even outside of the money, what it did was it brought, it brought validity to the idea right. by having the NFL say, you know what, yes, we're going to put up money for research. And, you know, it just, it brings awareness to the concept that potentially there is something to it, mm-hmm. you know, and we know anecdotally, like I always say when I talk to my supervisors from like, I call it from out here in the wild, like what we're doing in real world, right? Because right. it's like what you do in research and then, you know, what we're doing out here with cannabis and like, you know, making your own tinctures and like, because it's very accessible to people now, yeah. you know, but there's such a disconnect between research and the real mm-hmm. world. And that yeah. was the place where I wanted to sit was to build a bridge between the real world and what we know. And we've known, you know, people that have used cannabis safely and for a long time, and they know that it has health benefits, you know, and in research, well, we want evidence-based, you know, it's evidence-based medicine. Mm-hmm. We want the evidence. And, and that's how you typically keep people safe. Although I do have... <laughs> some thoughts on that but you know the evidence model i question sometimes well if you're where you're getting your evidence from is broken then how you know right right exactly yeah you 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 know no because when especially for cannabis because you think legally okay well in the u.s it's still a schedule one narcotic so you can't do the research on it here because you know it's nearly impossible you know researchers basically when they change the laws they handcuff researchers to do any research on it and so when they say we don't have the data it's not because researchers haven't tried to get it it's because they Mm -hmm. have laws and policies in place that have now titled this thing a narcotic because people just decided it was now in a new category and that pretty much killed research. And with that, it froze people's understanding and education in time. We have been frozen in time with research because of policies. And it's not because the plant doesn't work. And it's not because, you Mm -hmm. know, all medical patients just want to get high. That is not true. Medical cannabis patients don't want to get high predominantly, you know, and there's ways that we can do that. You know, you can mix ratios and stuff and you can keep it. You know, and again, as most of your listeners probably know, there's so many bioactive molecules in the cannabis plant, like 500. THC is only one of 500 bioactive molecules. But every law is just 
It's based around THC. Focused on that, yeah. Right. So take THC out of it. That leaves like 499 other molecules that can do a lot of really cool things over here. And so, you know, I'm thankful for my education and my molecular understanding because it's like, oh, that's cool. And you start to see like what you can do. Mm-hmm. And then I really do have a good understanding on how it can be used, you know, with neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration. And, you know, at the very least, it it will develop a whole new scaffolding for a drug right. category. You exactly. Know? And, and the types of research it'll spur later, yeah. you know, whenever the kind of yeah. final narrative comes together from all of these studies and how they connect, what that will inspire, it'll, it's a snowball effect. Yeah. Um, you know, trying so to much... understand and fill the gaps and, yep. And there's so much there, you know, like even... And and what's really exciting now is, you know, because researchers are smart too. Like they can get pretty creative to jump through some hoops to get research done, right? Yep. So oh, yeah. you know, there's Especially a lot in of this space. Absolutely, because you have to be creative. You have mm-hmm. to be creative. I mean, and you have to really be in it for the long haul because like nothing's happening quickly here because of all the legislation. But oh, yeah. you know, I there's just great research that doesn't involve THC. So there's a lot of things that you can do, you know, even looking at terpenes, like beta caryophylline right, research right. is yep. amazing. Like mm-hmm. you look, okay, so beta caryophylline can hit the CB2 receptor by itself as an mm-hmm. agonist, you know, and now they're looking at, oh, well, maybe it's actually a megal inhibitor. Well, that's cool because it would increase 2AG. So I just read a paper on that. I'm like, well, that's, it's fascinating. Which like could the then lead-, lead to some indirect CB1 activity. Absolutely. And, yep. Well, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's how CBD, you know, blocks or like inhibiting the FA enzyme, it increases your anandamide. And so there's so many things that you can do and neither one of those were THC. (laughs) Like, you know, you can really play with your own natural endocannabinoid system. But again, cannabis isn't the only way we can do that. You know, we know now meditation does it. We know that cold plunges do it. We know that music does it. We know dancing does it. Like there's ways that you can get your own endocannabinoid system to upregulate itself. And that to me is so exciting because yes. that those are things that aren't pharmaceuticals or even bioactive molecules, but it's you controlling your own physiology. Exactly. And to me, yeah. it's so possible. And diet, we know, you know, your yeah. endocannabinoids, they're made from fats. So like this whole low fat diet idea that we all had and like, should, that was a terrible train wreck. And so Oops. you wonder... Yeah, whoops, exactly. And so just looking at, you know, it's just one more tool in the toolbox. And, you know, I think that's a good way to think about it. It's it's about developing these tools and um, better understanding how to apply them and inspiring other people to, um, you know, think how to, to use those tools in the future. And one thing I was um, wondering about, do you happen to know offhand how many um, just in the NFL, how many players there are active oh currently? I don't know. I couldn't. I don't even know tell either. You. Yeah, I was just yeah. wondering. It just kind of popped in my head. Um, because just thinking about active players, there have to be so many, and then you think about retired players. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you expand that to think about other sports. Um, and right. and then you were talking about you know, the TBI is affecting, uh, you said, wasn't it like 6% or something like that? Yeah. Um, that's a lot of people. It's, uh, it's a lot of people. And even TBI is like, you know, so you have concussion, which is like MTBI, you know, it's like, it's a, a little bit of a smaller traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. you know, but then you have the, 
TBI, you know, grand scale TBIs when you're having like a car crash and whatnot, but the cost to society for, you know, the healthcare for people that have TBIs and the downstream of that, it's very costly to the country when there's potentially things that we can do you know, to reduce the neuroinflammation that would then reduce the downstream effects. And so, you know, outside of quality of life, mm-hmm. it can also reduce the cost, you know, the healthcare cost, if you can kind of cut the cascade off at a certain mm-hmm. point to where, you know, the dysfunction's not going to happen. And so for me, concussion has always been something that I looked at because of sports, but, um, you know, in the brain, but, but again, the endocannabinoid system is so fascinating because it's everywhere in your body. These receptors are everywhere. And and your peripheral nervous system is very involved in how you receive the world too. Mm -hmm. And that's how you, you know, your autonomic nervous system, which you're not controlling at all, is sending signals always to your brain about, you know, necessary physiological changes. And so, you know, a simple example is if someone jumps out and scares you, well, your heart rate goes up. You didn't tell your heart rate to go up. It went up because your body had an impending threat. So you need glucose fast, you need oxygen fast, this is survival mode, right? So you think about your autonomic nervous system and how things outside of even your conscious control, right? right. And, and you can get in there, you know, we know, like, when you look at the receptors that CBD can work on, you can really work on your autonomic nervous system. And that's where I think a lot of the stuff that we see with, you know, anxiety and you know so many of the things that we see now like a sympathetic dominant like the fight or flight you know Mm -hmm. and we know physiologically that's a disaster you know you can have cardiac bad cardiac outcomes you can you know if you're stuck in a sympathetic system all the time yeah it's very unhealthy yeah it's super unhealthy and so when you look at how cbd can really get in there and increase the inhibitory pathways instead Mm -hmm. of the excitatory pathways concussion is all excitatory pathways you know you're Glutamate, mm-hmm. which is your excitatory neurotransmitter, when you have, you know, you get hit in the head and that energy transfer comes in, well, the way that our nerves work, it's electrical. So it's mm-hmm. an electrical current that changes to chemical at the part of the synapses in the neuron. And so it, you really, to conceptualize what's happening in your brain, you have to understand that it's all ion exchanges. Like it's not even chemical. So when I look at the human body, and you go backwards, you think, okay, well, you have a human body, which is a physical thing. Well, before that, it was a chemical, you know, exchange. Mm -hmm. But before a chemical exchange, it was physics. It's ions. That's how your heart beats. It's depolarization. And so when you really look at the power of understanding ion exchanges and things that like, we'll never visually see, you have to be able to conceptualize it in your brain. But I mean, we have cell phones. How do you think that works? It's ion. This is energy, you know, Wi-Fi, cell signal, how you and I are talking right now. It's fascinating. And your body is run by the same things. And, you know, plants are run by the same things. And so when you really start to mirror even the universe, like how all these things operate, but it's such a... has a very like fractal nature to it. Absolutely. But it's empowering to know that you can have, you do have quite a bit of control over your own physiology. And so, you know, instead of being like, oh, you know, I'm doomed. And that's the part of epigenetics that I love, you Mm, know, is, mm -hmm. you know, in the 90s, we used to think, well, your genetic code, you know, whatever you're coded for, that's the blueprint, that's what you're going to turn out to be. Well, we know now that 
the code is there, but you still have to turn it on and off. And that's yes. epigenetics. And so transcription factors in your DNA is what comes in and it tells the DNA what to turn on, what code, what protein mm-hmm. to make, what protein to not make. So when you look at concussion, you think, huh. So with that energy exchange in your brain and the ions moving down and affecting a neuron a certain way, how could that potentially turn on and off mm-hmm. transcription factors? You know, yeah. and then, and we know CBD, you know, the PPAR gamma receptor, which is one of the receptors mm-hmm. that CBD is an agonist of, it's a transcription factor. It yeah. goes into the nucleus and it codes for certain proteins to be coded. So again, I think back to athletics. And so then I start thinking about, huh, WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Association mm-hmm. that makes the rules for what is allowed and what is not allowed. Yeah. They decided in 2018, so cannabis is allowed or is not allowed according to the IOC and WADA. In 2018, mm-hmm. they removed CBD from their mm-hmm. prohibited list. Yeah. But they left THC in there. So what is that about? You know, because when I think of CBD and and I think of performance enhancing, I'm thinking of things that CBD can do. I mean, PPAR gamma is responsible for, you know, lipid, your metabolism. Mm -hmm. So lipid metabolism, glucose metabolism. So if I can agonize that with CBD and I can potentially affect the bioenergetics of my cell and creating ATP, Mm -hmm. which is what my body's functioning on as an athlete, How is that not potentially performance enhancing? But what it says to me is whoever's making those rules does not understand the endocannabinoid system because if they did, if they did, but this is health policy. This is about THC is illegal according to the laws. So we're going to leave it in the, in the prohibited category. Keep it in the cage. Yeah. Ridiculous. You know, it's either. So now there's even splitting hairs. It's like, okay, I mean, you should have some baseline understanding of what you're doing there before you remove one and not the other, but it's following the health policy because in 2018 mm-hmm. with the farm bill, CBD came out. Yeah. But well, that's it's created... like, it's like you were saying that like a lot of these people that are in positions of power to control health policy are generally not of the right uh, disposition or um, or have the right um, training or experience or expertise to be making those decisions. And so we end up in these ridiculous situations that perpetuate for decades and decades for no reason, really. Right. And, and you know, and almost sometimes I think it's on purpose. But like when you look at cannabis yeah. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and how that's been perpetuated, it's, you know, it's left out of the curriculum on purpose. And so, you know, it is a baby science, the endocannabinoid system, and now it's starting to come online. But when you really look at the health policy and the policy makers, what really keeps me up at night is how can you not teach this, yet you have this enormous commercial market coming online right now where you're selling products to your citizens that you're supposed to be making decisions for to protect, Mm -hmm. but you're, so, you know, I'm sure when they made the farm bill, they didn't really think that, and again, the chemists and people can be real smart and find loopholes around things. I'm sure that they didn't think far enough in advance to think, wow, Mm -hmm. it's not really that far of a hop to go from CBD that's pennies on the dollar, move a couple double bonds and I can come out with Delta nine, right. Or I can take, you know, and I can make Delta eight or, you know, and now 
the sky is the limit. But, you know, these policies that are put in place, I look at them and it's like, man, if you would have just left it alone, (laughs) just left the plant alone. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. You know, it would have ended and it up would, in a much better situation. Wouldn't have people it, taking these mysterious concoctions well, on, right. the, uh, on the hemp side. Yep. Yeah, and they're doing it again. A lot of people, when you look at the research of like, why are they taking these synthetics? Well, it's to avoid the drug testing exactly. that was implemented at yep. their work or in athletics or whatever. So they're trying yep. to scoot the, the drug test. Okay, well, so they're taking substances that are super could potentially dangerous, maybe not, you know, but if they're made in a bad way and, you know, the acids don't come no off. There's no quality control. Bad, there's mean... no quality control. And so now, and the lack of education to the people that are buying these, they have no idea where mm-hmm. those were made. And they think because they're for sale, they must be safe and someone must be regulating this. It's like, ah, uh, no. And it's not for lack of people asking. Like we've mm-hmm. asked them to regulate CBD in some capacity, you know, and yep. now the FDA here decided, oh, well, we need to create a new category. So that's probably going to take them another hundred years. But Right, right, exactly. And then things will change to make that irrelevant. By the time they decide on anything. Right. In Canada, CBD is actually regulated the same way THC is. So it's actually sold in our dispensaries there Mm. um, if you want a CBD product. But it's really interesting to live between the two countries because you can see the different regulations. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Like, you have a very unique perspective kind of uh, riding the saddle between the United States and Canada and both of these cannabis markets. So... um, as we're getting to like the last uh, 10 minutes or so, let's focus on that a little bit. Like what what have you learned from looking at the way the states have handled things and Canada's handled things? And what have what's yeah. kind of uh, gone right and, and wrong so far? We've covered a couple of them, but just yeah. to kind of focus in on that. I think that so in Canada, it's really interesting, actually, to compare the two and see. So we put our Cannabis Act in place in 2018 in Canada, and it was with the agreement that there would be a five year review. So mm-hmm. we're already at the point right now where we're doing the five year review. That's to look at, You know, how did this, ca- you know, where did we do right? Where did we do wrong? And so, you know, there's some things in Canada that we definitely did wrong. You know, we. And so I can riff on that for just one second because there's parts that, of that that it's like, all right, that did not go according to plan. So, you know, they created yeah. a they created a regulated market there to protect the youth and to service the medical, you know, the medicinal cannabis population. That was the idea. Okay, makes sense, you know, and to have a regulated supply of cannabis for the people mm-hmm. that wanted to use it. That makes sense. You have a clean supply, you know where the growers are. Now, the regulation on the growers is uh, like super high. So they have all kinds of crazy things. Like, like, for example, if you're growing, you have to sweep the floor like every, I think it's eight hours or something because they can't be oh, any leaves or anything on the ground and everything has okay. to be clean because what, because what someone's going to eat the sugar leaves. Like, I don't understand. It made no sense. The mice now, will come in and get high. Right, get high. Exactly. When you ask the government though, like why, so why all these crazy strict regulations, they'll say, and this does make sense. It's over, it's easier to over-regulate things and then pull back some of the regulations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that it is to implement okay further ones that makes sense so now we're five years later and we're we're looking at you know where can we change some of the things you know our dispensaries had to have windows blacked out so that mm-hmm. you couldn't see what was going in inside there perfect that makes a lot of sense for the person that wants to rob you 
<laughs> like yeah, I can't see you getting robbed inside. Right, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, and if you want kids to really oh, think something shady is going on right, in there, right. black out all the windows, you know, now create you really more want to go stigma. inside. Yeah. yeah. Or create more stigma. Like something real bad must be happening mm-hmm, in there if we mm-hmm. can't even see what's going on. Right. So a couple of provinces, I'm from Alberta, they they got away from that. They don't have to block the windows out anymore because it was a safety concern, honestly. But yeah. but what it really did was and because I kind of look at it like I'm between, you know, I consider the athletic approach as being different from the recreational use, which there is recreational use mm-hmm. by athletes for sure. But where I'm looking at it for concussion and stuff is so you have a recreational use and then you have a medical use of people that mm-hmm. actually have, you know, epilepsy or cancer or something. So there's those two. And I see athletics and where we sit as a therapeutic use. They're not sick. They're Mm -hmm. not sick. They don't have a pathology that they're addressing. You know, concussion, maybe they do. But in general, you know, they're looking at it from a way of health. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, they can use it recreationally, but that's a different conversation. But when you look in Canada, what happened with um, their legal market, just one example is, so if I'm a grower and I'm growing a supply and I sell it into the medical market, I have incrementally more paperwork that I have to do to pr- to sell mm-hmm. that in the medical mm-hmm. market. Yeah. Now, our medical market works a little bit differently where a patient orders directly from a licensed producer and then the licensed producer mails them their product. There's no personal mm. interaction, which I don't like that as somebody yeah, that I think yeah. there's a lot of value in social connection and also, mm-hmm. you know, patient engagement, knowing that somebody is... Building. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a mistake, but whatever... So, so the people that are growing for the medical market have to do a lot more paperwork. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if that same grower can grow the same product, but sell it into the recreational market, they have significantly less paperwork to do. So what mm-hmm. happened? Well, we've lost a lot of our medical growers because right. they're like, well, why do I want to do extra work? Like I can grow the same thing and I can make as much money, you know, yeah, and sense. also our medical market, which makes no sense product is more expensive. So they're passing the cost on to the patient, whereas in the States, product is cheaper. Now we do have, hmm. for medical users, I mean, our, our product in general is way cheaper in Canada. Like it's crazy how cheap it is compared to parts of the States. But, um, but particular to a medical patient, their product is a little bit more expensive. We do hmm. have compassionate pricing. One thing where Canada, I think, has done an absolutely outstanding job is with their vets and their first responders our government will actually pay for um i think it's three grams a day for them to have really? cannabis really? yes where wow. if you split screen that to the u.s their vet doctors the vet the veterans doctors aren't even allowed to talk about cannabis here because yeah. it's against yeah. because it's schedule one and it's federally illegal and the military is federal right so right. those yeah. doctors can't even talk about yeah. it and when you think of the value you know, I think of vets a lot because when we look at concussion and you look at the setup of professional athletics, mm-hmm. it's very similar to the military um, in, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of yeah. parallels between, you know, the way of life of the guys and, you know, and the families. You have to move a lot. You're right, very, exactly. yeah. Yeah. your community is your teammates or your, you know, your unit in the military but also the physiology of the benefits that we could really get from this plant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for both of those, I think both of those groups, populations, there's a lot to be had there. But 
Anyway, so yeah, so that's a big difference is the way that we treat our veterans in Canada. Now, of course, the government has watched the amount of veterans and the increase in cost of the amount of veterans that are using the product. So now they're, you know, kind of backtracking on, well, what qualifies as use, you know, because it's, but cannabis in Canada is very cheap. And so again, when you think about the cost reduction, Mm-hmm. If they can use that, and as our country, our healthcare is through, and that's another big difference between Canada and the U.S. is we have our healthcare is provided to us by our country, and so mm-hmm. our income taxes are a bit higher. So it's like we prepay our mm-hmm. healthcare, right? So if you think of the cost savings, really, if the vets and first responders are using cannabis for X amount of dollars instead of drawing on other healthcare provisions you know, the I mental see. health, yeah, right. the, you know, self-harm mm-hmm. accidents, other overdoses, you know, other things. Well, maybe we're actually saving money. So right. yeah, it costs mm-hmm. us X amount of dollars in cannabis costs. Yes. But we're saving a lot of money over here and their quality of life, you know, it, right. it, it could be improved and it is improved when you look at that statistically, but yeah, but the, the differences and things like that, you know, we're a world apart, really. That's super but interesting. Yeah. I think Canada, though, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from how we did it there. You know, we did some things right. I think federally descheduling it was, a, I think that mm-hmm. was great. Um, and I think that the lessons that we have from doing it and now reviewing it, I think that the U.S. and the states here could you know, they could learn from us. I think that we did yeah. make a lot of mistakes along the way for sure. And we're trying to get better. You know, we are, they do listen and our government is listening to people, you know, it's yeah. tough though, because it's also, it's a very established commercial market there now. Yeah. Super complicated. And it doesn't make it any more easy for people to understand what's going on in there either, because, you yeah. know, they don't really understand well, how could this be medical when kids are using it right. after school under the bleachers? <laughs> like, you know, it's like it doesn't align to them, but it's like yeah. there's it's so much more than that. You know, it just it could go on and on forever about how, you know, the lessons to be learned from from cannabis politically, it's, you know, health wise. It's, it's prime time. Like, you know, the United States is now talking about rescheduling or descheduling like they they really need to yep. be looking around and and trying to learn from um, what Canadians have learned about, just like you said, what went right and and what needs to be tweaked. Um, Because once you do make a change that big, like you're saying, things get established, and then it can be challenging to um, make substantial changes to the system once it's going, um, just because it's just got a lot of players, a lot of interests, a lot of things that, you know, moving, a lot of money. And um, yeah. so it's it's important to take the time to have that consideration. And I really, really hope we see descheduling in the United States rather than going yeah. to schedule three. Yeah. But we'll I agree. See. But, I agree. Uh, I I would I would vote for descheduling too. But if if schedule three, at least you know that would be some progress. It, you know, it would be better than nothing. Although schedule three is prescription and you know so that makes me sometimes wonder about huh well 
What's the what is, yeah? What's that gonna mean? Because that's gonna that there's a reason for that. You know, when you think about it, there's a reason mm-hmm. why it, they're talking about that rather than just fully descheduling it. And honestly, well, and, and why schedule three? Why not four or five? Like exactly. there are other, you know, that there yeah. are others. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and on that note, it's like we have FDA approved cannabis medication right now, Dronabinol, Marinol. Those are already, that is just a THC isolate. That's it. The only thing in those, we have Epidiolex, which is just CBD. Those are FDA approved, right? It's like they're already, they're already prescription medications, but it's like, I think that the patentability of products, because the cannabis plant has so many fantastic bioactive Mm -hmm. molecules, the patentability of different combinations of those, the sky is the limit. Um, I think there's going to be a ton of products because the way that those molecules work, they do Mm -hmm. work, the physiology of how they work. But I just don't think that we can ever take it away from the plant. You know, the plant has everything it needs. And also another thing that keeps me up at night is, the socioeconomic part, mm-hmm. when you think about in certain cultures, you know, yep, yep, you yep. think of places like in Pakistan, they have these valleys there. They can't afford any medication, but they use this plant for so many different things. You can grow mm-hmm. it yourself. You know, they they use it for toothaches. They use it for stomach yep. aches. They use it for blood pressure reduction. And physiologically, yes, that does work. So why should mm-hmm. these people who can't afford medication not be able to grow this plant and use it the way they always have culturally? Who is anybody to say, no, you can't use this plant now? This plant was here before any of us were. Right, right, exactly. Who's coming in here making these constructs of, oh, well, now, no, now it's bad. But you can grow, but you can grow opium poppies and that's legal. You know, you can, you can grow all these other things um, that we derive all sorts of, uh, you know, lethal um, drugs from. Those are all fine. right. Well, and, and can you imagine, like, I mean, just knowing a few things of the plant kingdom, think of the things that you or I could grow in our garden and know what right. we could do with them, right? right. Like, oh, yeah. And no one would, they wouldn't even know because they don't, they just, you mm-hmm. know, they swung their camera to look at the things that were legally triggering. And so yeah. now, you know, it's all about that, but it's like the things that we can use that haven't swung any cameras to look at it, like there's no laws there's against it. Right. Yep. But now, you know, and that's why the war on drugs was just such an objective failure, because, you know, they put these policies in place. And really, the damage that those policies did far outdid the damage that the plant ever could have done, you know, Absolutely. generationally. Absolutely. It, it's yeah. just, you know, oh, and sort breaks- of th- thinking about like you were talking about with uh, traumatic brain injuries and tracing the cascades of effects through the body. You know, we're still unpacking the cascades of effects of damage and things just from the the policy side. Absolutely. And that's the thing is there's so many mirrors, you know, when you look at the plant and how what happened there, it just mirrors so many other places in life, you know, or in our body, or you really start to see the fractals of the setup of things, you know, and uh, man, it just, you know, and the health policy, like, again, I think cannabis went through, uh, a, you know, a lot of health policy, obviously created this whole war on drugs thing. Mm-hmm. And then even just more recently, you look at what happened in the pandemic and some of the health policies that yep. were put in place there. And, you know, as you're sitting there asking yourself, who is making these decisions and what are you basing it on? And, you know, but all of us are, uh, you know, have to comply with this or we're going to get, you know, 
whatever, right. you know, and you have can't no go time to, to process right. even you have, you just have to do, you know, so these policies mm-hmm. are put in place and the damage that they did, like, you know, by shutting the schools down and whatever. And I know that you can say, you know, just anyways, I don't want to even start on that, but oh yeah, no, I totally impl- understand. Yeah. The implementation of the policies, again, I think are so much more harmful than what potentially could have been, you know, and with cannabis, it was just the history of cannabis and the history of how politically that came to be was, you know, it's a big big lesson we can learn from that applies to way more than cannabis for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one thing too, that it just, it really, sometimes I wish I never would have learned it because you can't unlearn it once you learn it and you understand. You cannot unsee it and you start to see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how many things were at play when those, you know, when cannabis was now made federally illegal and the policies were changing regarding it and, and how amazing it was that it was, you know, within the course of a few years when they put in prohibition that, I mean, it was just years before that they were using it for everything in the pharmacopoeia yeah, because yeah. it works. But then we socially constructed this idea that it's bad now. Yeah. So now they started, you know, the whole reefer madness and everything. And now literally generations later, we're stuck there because yeah. we haven't been, I mean, we're still censored to be able to even oh, yeah. talk about it. And now we have social media and stuff where anything cannabis is censored. It's like, that is a really bad harm reduction strategy. Right, Education right. is the harm where you should be teaching yes. people about it, including your policymakers, because they're mm-hmm. making so many mistakes, you know, but like, no, we rather yeah. put our heads in the sand and just try well, to keep progressing. Yes. Ignorant. And Yes. And that's kind of the thing now looking at athletics and that's sort of my message to the teams is, you know, cannabis isn't going anywhere. So you Mm -hmm. cannot stick your head in the sand anymore. And we understand physiologically how it works and we want to produce data, you know, well, we know how it works. I should back that up so I don't get smacked by my supervisors. We know how it works preclinically and in animal models. We have a shortage of of being able to do human research because of the health policies that were put in place. We haven't been able to do it on people. So that's why this project is so exciting to me because we're able to study it in actual humans, not mice, not petri dishes, not like cell cultures, in actual humans because Forevermore, the doctors are saying we don't have human data. Yeah, there's a reason for that. It's because your health policies prevented it. It's not because we haven't been trying to get it. But that's why this is so exciting that we can come out with some data, good or bad. It's progress because we've been found a way to be able to do it. And now, you know, we're getting there now and we got our clinicaltrial.gov number. And so that's super exciting. But the lessons to be learned from it, you know, go far beyond the physiology and to the athletics teams and stuff. I would challenge them to really start thinking about how their policies are put in place and who's making these decisions. And the athletes are all at the helm of these decision makers, you know, they have to do what they're told. And that's one of the things. And I think the mental health aspects of that. And when I think of them and military, they have no agency to make decisions for themselves about their own bodies in a lot of ways. And if you think of how damaging that can be to a person, you know, we are the only person that lives inside our body. And in athletics, you know, they can tell you, well, you know, you can't use this, you can't use this, you Mm -hmm. can't use this. Okay, fine. But now with cannabis, it's like, well, 
what if I want to use that instead of what you're mm-hmm. telling me I have to use? What if I would rather use cannabis than tramadol or toradol? Right. Yeah. What if I, well, no, That's we say you one. can't. Yeah, but I live in my body. And you know what? After I'm off your roster, I still have to live in this body. And so the decisions that are being made for them because they're valuable while they're on the roster and same with military, the military men are valuable while they're in service. But the second that either one of those two are off active duty or off the roster, who's taking care of them? And that, you know, who cares anymore? You know, and now they're just kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, look at how we treat our vets in the United States. That's terrible. You know, they serviced our country. Yeah. And I mean, athletes aren't servicing a country, but they're doing their job. But then when they're done the job, you know, where are the services? You know, I just and that was kind of the whole underlying thing of my PhD is we need to do better while yeah. they're on our roster, while they're playing so that they can have a better quality of life when they're done. Because yes. for my husband, yeah. that's what I wanted for him was to do the best that we can while he's playing to keep his physiology in check so that when he retires and carries on, he has the best quality of life that is possible for him. And I do think that, you know, cannabinoids and cannabinoid therapeutics, as far as no inflammation goes, I think that there is a role there that could be, you know, played by them. So that we can help stop the cascade of the neuroinflammation and the microglial activation. You know, if we can tamper that down while they're on the roster, well, maybe decades down the road, their mental health will be better. You know, we can do more here. And I hope that our data, you know, will be able to come out and we'll find some interesting things, I'm sure. And, you know, maybe we're all wrong. Maybe we'll find things that are, you know, even better than we thought or maybe even worse. But I mean, it's just amazing to be able to actually have a look at it and see, especially because so many people in the world are using the product. Right, exactly. Why do we not already know? Like, right, why, Mm -hmm. you know, we should probably have this data before we're, you know, allowing people to access it so freely, which they are. And, you know, historically, there's not a lot of damage to be done from the historical plant, which had about 6% THC in it. Now we have like 25% THC and that's not the same plant. So, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's a whole nother conversation about, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the other products too, you know, you cannabis is not one thing. Cannabis right. is right. um, a multitude of things. And our biology is not linear. Our biology is a network. And so yes. when you look at, the network that is the cannabinoids and the network that is our physiology. Like it's so exciting to see how they work together. And then, you know, the fractals, like you said, you see parallels all over the place when you learn from this. And yeah, I just think it's amazing. Well, this is, this is all why I like to talk to you and why I wanted to bring you on the show because you, you have a tendency to, um, bridge the connections between a lot of these these different pieces and it you know going back to what I was saying before it's personal for you and you know for me like why I'm doing curious about cannabis and all the other stuff I do it's because it's personal for me um and that that passion like really comes through so um I'm really excited to get into the mini series as we start to explore as the studies develop you know we'll be touching base with um, not only yourself but all of your other colleagues that are working on different things and kind of get some insight into how those studies are put together and the mechanisms involved that you're looking at and the implications for all of that. Um, I think it's a, a really cool project and something that 
is going to affect a lot more people than I think a lot of folks right now are realizing. Um, because it's, it, it does extend so much further than just the NFL. So, um, with that, I know we've been going over an hour. Um, I appreciate you being willing to, um, take the time and come on. Um, I definitely want to get you in the master class and, uh, yeah. talk to some of our students about the work that you're doing as well. Cause I think it just, it just bridges so many important concepts, the, the mechanisms, you know, the pharmacokinetics and everything, but all the way up to the policy and the psychology, the philosophy, you know, the mental health of, of people and just overall quality of life. Um, it gets people thinking and that's extremely important more so than yeah. ever. So thank you for taking the time and to kind of wrap up, let people know how to learn more about the study and your work and everything and uh, anything else you want to share in our last few minutes here? Oh, oh, for sure. Well, I am just honored to be on your podcast at all. So thank you for having me. I am just happy to be here. And that is what I really want to do is just get people thinking, you know, just like mm -hmm. you did, you know, make people curious. And I think that, you know, with cannabis, I think that there's a lot of questions, even whether you use cannabis or not. The yeah. You should be asking these questions, you know. Um, so for myself, one part of my project that I am looking at is um, the knowledge, opinion, and perspectives of athletes regarding cannabinoid therapy, and also the um, knowledge, opinion, and perspectives of the medical training staff right. that are right. responsible for taking care of them. So if there are any athletes listening, I'm going to have to plug this here so that um, I have an anonymous survey. So um, if you go, I have a very small Instagram that I don't really post anything on because um, I don't want to misrepresent anything that we're doing. I just try to keep it short, but I do have the survey links up there. So if you were ever um, an NCAA or an elite level contact sport athlete of any kind, um, please go to train with dot Mary Jane on Instagram and you can find the survey link there. Um, and also there's a link there for the medical training staff as well, because I am um, trying to get an idea of mm -hmm. what does the landscape look like in there. And that was my part of, you know, suggesting to them that maybe we should do a litmus test on what do people even think. Now I have some ideas mm. about what athletes think and I have some ideas about what the medical training staff thinks and you know maybe those two don't really line up um but so my data is going to um be produced to show you know what do they think about cannabinoid therapy what have they been taught like we know yeah. um we know the education is lacking in in medical training staff so i'm hoping that we can get a good understanding of what they know um, so if people are athletes or medical training staff, they can find me there. There's also the, the website and it just train with maryjane.com. Yeah. Yeah. Train with maryjane.com or Mary Jane athletics. They both loop to the same place and you cool. can find the surveys there and they're totally anonymous because as with anything, you know, I think that it Especially can be a touchy, yeah, it's a touchy subject mm -hmm. for some people and even trying to engage people, um, in conversation, it, more so in the US than in Canada, that's a big difference. In Canada, it's been almost normalized. And, you know, that being said, I just would like it to be known that when we legalized it in Canada, Canada, 
people didn't all of a sudden just start using cannabis like crazy. Yeah. Like nothing happened. It wasn't some big, you know, everybody turned into, I don't know, Cheech and Chong. That didn't happen. Like we legalized yeah. it and it was a total fizzle and nothing. And so, you know, in the youth, the youth, use actually went down a little bit and now it's gone up a bit but you know it wasn't like everybody just started right there was no dramatic like crazy no you know and so this terror of that we did it it didn't happen there and you know well the people that use cannabis are already using it well for the most part and so it's just a matter of safe legal access and quality of product and and um harm reduction yeah Yep. And that's, that's the message to the athletics too, you know, is it's like your guys are already using this. So Mm -hmm. if you, you know, want to stick your head in the sand and pretend that they're not, then in my opinion, that's negligent. You're not taking the best care of them that you can. You're not providing them with the answers from their medical healthcare practitioners that are responsible for their well-being. And that communication shouldn't be stifled because that's not good for anybody. There should be an open communication for safety, but also for if they want help, to understand mm-hmm. how to use it therapeutically, then you should also be educated enough to be able to provide that because now the product is accessible. They're yeah. not breaking any laws in most mm-hmm. states now by accessing the product. It is not illegal at the state level. Um, you know, federal is different, but these guys aren't doing anything wrong. And so sticking yeah. your head in the sand, pretending it's going to go away or punishing them for doing that when you look at you know, other substances that aren't punished in the same way just makes no sense anymore. Yeah. No sense yeah. at all. So, so I'm hoping that if there's athletes listening, they can go to my survey. So that it's a chance for them to have their voice be heard. Um, and Absolutely. so my idea with that is just that, you know, rising tides will lift all boats. And so right. we can show, you know, people want education and they want to know more, um, you know, then we that can follow and the policymakers will be able to see, you know, oh, okay, well, you know, they would like to know. And so maybe we could provide some resources and some stuff for that for our athletes, because yeah. really your athletes are the most valuable thing you have. You know, your locker room is worth billions of dollars and those athletes, their most valuable tool is their body. And yeah. so for them, it's really important. And, you know, it's, and again, I think there's parallels between athletes and how, you know, in tune with their body they are and people that use cannabis. People mm-hmm. that use cannabis are very in tune with the small, minute differences of different mm-hmm. terpenes or different percentages. You know, they're not looking at something in, you know, chromatography, mass chromatography or anything. Right. They just, they feel it. They feel yeah. oh, that one made me feel this way. That one made me feel that way. Well, athletes are also known to be very in tune with their body. Mm-hmm. You know, ah, oh, my groin's a little tight or, oh, I'm a little tired. You know, they yeah. have a, a heightened perception of themselves and people that use cannabis are also very in tune with their bodies too. And so, you know, those are things that we should be welcoming people to yeah. pay attention to their health where we have enough people that just ignore it altogether and oh, hope for the best, but yeah, no, it's um, it's a promising future. I mean, and we saw like the NBA change their stance. Um, it's it's the dominoes are fall are falling, and so it's a matter of, like you said, um, developing the right education, information, and knowledge so we can best support the athletes. It's a win 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 for everybody for the companies, the athletes themselves, and their families. And I think the families of the athletes often get forgotten about. Um, yeah. But they 
you know, end up having to deal with, you know, anything that happens to their loved one and end up taking care of those athletes as they get older and have to deal with these cascading problems and things. And so it really runs deep. Um, so yeah. it's important work you're doing. Um, I'm excited to see how it all develops. Um, and, uh, yeah, I appreciate you being willing to be open about all of the work you're doing and, uh, to come on and share about it. So again, just to reiterate any athletes or, um, trainers or healthcare professionals that work with athletes, either one, um, go check out, uh, train with Mary or Mary or train with dot Mary Jane on Instagram, go find those links to those surveys and, uh, let your perspective and your voices be heard. Um, who knows, uh, what all of these studies will snowball into and, uh, and affect downstream. So, um, and with that, everybody, I appreciate you tuning in and listening. It's been so fun to get back to doing these episodes. And I look forward to doing many more soon. So um, I appreciate you all for tuning in regularly. And I'll catch you next time. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye, everybody.